Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Dalai Lama, for him to kind of get what this guy meant by unworthiness. And finally, he, he understood. This may be three or four. And then he, he looked up and he said, You're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. Right? Now, could you imagine the Dalai Lama saying, You're wrong? You know? But it was very, very clear and firm. You are wrong. This is an incorrect understanding. And what I was getting from it, and kind of paraphrasing the, the teaching, he said, what makes, what makes you think that everything else is part of the universe, is part of the Dharma, but somehow you're a mistake? You know, that the perfection that's moving through all of us is not true for you. I came across this quote. I don't know who it was, uh, but somebody handed me this quote. It said, um, Believing your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring our own opinion to God's. When you have this feeling that you're not good enough, in a way, it is. It's insulting to the Dharma. Everything else is perfect, but you were a mistake. And somehow we, we have a hard time getting in touch with our own beauty or with our own right to be free. Maybe uh, you've heard the, the story, I'll, I'll share it again this evening, about uh, studying with this uh, Indian uh, wonderful Advaita teacher, Punjaji, who, um, who everybody would come to and he'd see their perfection and he'd say, you are already perfect. You are already free. Everyone. You know. And some of them, actually, by the power of his perception, would get it. And uh, when I remember uh, going to him first, I, I, I said, well, you know, I, in, in those early days, there was a chance to have, uh, ask a lot of questions. It was a smaller, smaller group before it came to be a big scene. And I, I had him. I had lots of, of questions, and I said, you know, how do I know um, that my karma is good enough for, uh, for freedom? You talk about freedom and, and uh, enlightenment, and I come from a model where if your karma is ripe and the conditions are, are all matured, then you can be free. How do I know I have that good karma? Or as you say, uh, Punjaji, how do I know that uh, I have grace, the grace that's needed, because he talked in those terms. And uh, he looked at me and he said, Grace, he said, you come around the world, you come to, to be here with such a sincere heart, I know. Good teacher, yeah. good surroundings, grace, grace. You're neck deep in grace and you wonder if you have grace. You know? <laughs> And when you think of it, we're all neck deep in grace. How is it that we all are here having the opportunity to practice in this extraordinary 
facility with everything provided for you, food and lodging and a great community to practice. But still, the question comes, how do I know? How do I know I'm good enough? We're all neck deep in grace. So the question is, with this unworthiness or with this comparing mind that doesn't feel we're, we're quite complete, can we see who we really are? Now, who are we really? There's a few different ways to look at it. One way that the Buddha had of explaining who we really are was in terms of what we are made up of, which he called five... The term aggregates is the, is the thing that's... Uh, the word that's sometimes used. Five skandhas or khandhas. And what that means, uh, uh, the word skanda, is a, a bundle or a heap. So he said we're really five heaps of stuff that comprise the human experience. The five are form. We have a body which has sensations and breathing and all of these bodily experiences. We have an experience of a feeling tone in each moment, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. We have perception that recognizes our experience and and puts it into the memory bank and kind of files it and sees how it is so we can negotiate in life. We, we have mental formations, thoughts and emotions, and we have a consciousness that registers our experience, that knows our experience. The bell rings and there is a knowing of it. And he said, this is really who we are. But we take these experiences as some solid sense of, of self, of who we are, and then grasp at them as my or me or mine. And that skanda or aggregate of perception is really where we get lost in comparison because the perception is one that as I said, files away and recognizes and compares. This is a big bell instead of this is without the word just what it is. It's a big bell if it were next to something small. But if it were next to a bell this big, it would be the small bell, wouldn't it? And that's a useful thing to recognize experience, but when we take it to be the ultimate reality, then we're in trouble. So this is one way of seeing who we really are, these five skandhas that we grasp at as being me. When we really see who we are, we can see even beyond the skandhas. Something that is 
moving through us, something that ex expresses itself, itself as us. This is Ajahn Sumedho. He says, uh, What is divinity? There is something that we rise up to or turn to because it's not instinctual. It won't be something we'll find unless we deliberately seek it. For reflection on divinity, we have beautiful selfless qualities that can manifest through the human form when there's no self. When you're not caught in ignorance, when all that process of self-view ceases, then the divinity is obvious. And then kindness, compassion, joy, serenity of mind are not something that we have to get, but something that manifests through these forms. What he calls the shining through of the divine. It's here all the time, waiting to be discovered or remembered. And it is a, a bodhisattva act, as I see it, an act of great generosity to all when we can discover or remember it. Because when we can see who we really are, our own goodness, our own beauty, our own wisdom, then we allow others to see who they are, too. We become reflections for them. And then we can notice it in everybody else because we've seen it in ourselves. And when we are shy or, or small or insecure or get caught in that comparing mind that says we're not enough, then we do a disservice not only to ourselves but to everybody else. As uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, this uh, uh, amazing Tibetan teacher, he said, uh, timidity is just another ego trip. Oh yes, I'm not good enough. That becomes your stance and you solidify a sense of self. And here's from uh, Nelson Mandela's inaugural speech. He quotes Marianne Williamson. He says, uh, we ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You're a child of God. Your playing small doesn't serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. So it's a, it's a really wonderful gift that we can give to ourselves and to everyone else when we see who we really are beyond our report cards of who we take ourselves to be. So, how to work with comparing mind? 
the judging mind. I'll share with you some some ways that I've worked with it, and um, perhaps you'll come up with your own as well. And I've had to work with it uh, because I really was uh, so dramatic when I started looking at my practice and seeing how rampant it was. And there is, there was the thought, oh my goodness, I'm, I've got much more of a judging mind than everybody else, but then that's just the stance I was taking. So now I've seen over the years, you know, I, I've got a judging mind like everyone else, but maybe it's not the most. Uh, I think we all have quite a good portion of it. But it was the, uh, the focus of, of my practice for for a, a long term, long time, and still, and still is. Although uh, it's um, it's changed, my relationship to it has changed a bit. But you press the right button, and out comes you know insecurity and uh, feeling very young. So you know it's there. But over the the course of years of practice, you can start to have a little different perspective. One aspect or one um, approach towards working with this judging mind is forgiveness. Now, how do you forgive this pattern that's so humbling, so humiliating at times? Well, I think the essence of forgiveness is an understanding of this predicament that we're in. And the understanding comes out of seeing the conditioning that has created this predicament. There you are, doing your best, and somehow you get down on yourself for it not being good enough. On uh, one retreat, I was doing this walking and slow walking in in, uh, the gym, and I was all by myself, and I go, really slowly. I just wanted to see how slowly I could, I could go. I was all alone, so I, I wasn't self-conscious. And in the middle of this exercise, somebody came into the, um, to the walking room, to the gymnasium at, at IMS, the lower walking room. And I knew this was going to look really bizarre because I was just trying to see how slow I could go. Right? But I wasn't going to change my my program for her. And after a few moments, oh, she had just come from her, uh, they just started a retreat, kind of just like this, actually. In those days, they tacked on a two-week retreat at the end of a three-month course. And you can really feel somebody's energy. So I knew this was going to look a little strange, right? But there I was, you know, just really crawling. And after about two minutes, this person bolted out of the, the, the walking room in what I thought was, you know, frustration. And as they crossed my, my vision, the thought came, boy, I really blew her mind. She must think I'm a great yogi. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, from that very centered, quiet place, it opened up this, it was like this trap door of ego and presentation and image and just... That was, was so humbling. 
And actually, from that slow walking, I became like a caged tiger. I just walked back and forth. I was pacing back and forth. And I did that for a little while, just thinking, God, I've been trying so hard. Two months I've been doing this, and it's just ugh, all this ego. And then in a moment, I realized the millions and millions of times that I'd had that kind of thought, that I'd practiced it so well in this lifetime. If you relate to more than life, one lifetime, then you know it's mind-boggling. And there was this, this wave of compassion. Wow, you know, what did I think? I would just unlearn the whole habit in one day or in two months? And that feeling of understanding of the conditioning, it was, it, was, it was such a powerful moment for me because there was this forgiveness that knew I was doing the best I could and didn't have to give myself a, a lousy grade for still slipping into that habit. So that's one thing. And I would say, as you notice the comparing or the judging in the mind, one way to bring this compassionate recognition to the noticing is using the mental noting and saying it very, very kindly. If you use mental noting, it doesn't, it's not for everybody, but if you can use it, it's very helpful. And one way that it's extremely helpful is as you change the tone of the note, you will bring kindness right to your experience. If you notice the judging mind and are noticing, oh, my mind has been wandering. Oh, I'm not supposed to wander. Oh, that was a judgment. I'm not supposed to be judging. Judging. All right, I noted it. I think that was another judgment. Damn it. Judging. 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 And you just keep on laying on one layer over another. There's no way out of that. But if in one moment you notice it with kindness, you change your whole relationship to it. And I, I've shared this with people. The, my main practice for at least a two-year period, on retreat and off retreat, was just saying in the kindest possible voice the word judging to myself. And sometimes I, I, I would just stroke my cheek like caressing a baby and just saying, Judging, judging, it's okay. That kindness, that forgiveness is incredibly powerful to cut through the confusion that we keep on laying on, on the situation. Another way to work with this judging or comparing mind is to see it as empty. See this thought, like all thoughts, as empty and impermanent. You don't invite the thoughts to come in. They just come in on their own. And you don't have to push them away either. As you see them for what they are, you don't have to take ownership of them. Joseph has a, a very good instruction. When you're really bothered by your thoughts, and you might try this here in the hall, just imagine they're coming from the person behind you. Okay? <laughs> which for all intents and purposes they are, you know. You don't invite that thought in. Oh, gee, I hope that guy gets his, 
<laughs> his thoughts changed, you know. <laughs> Not you. No, it wasn't you. No, no. Oh, the Buddha, yeah. That guy's got it all figured out. They are completely empty. They're as, thoughts are as real as we make them and as empty as we let them be. They come in like bubbles and they pass away. And as long as we don't take blame or credit for them, they move through us. No problem. That's one of the great gifts of this practice, to have any thought, any thought in the world, no matter how bizarre or grotesque or whatever, and not take ownership of it. No problem. You know? I have the most bizarre thoughts that go through my head. You know? 20 years ago, I would be very embarrassed by them in my mind. If anybody ever knew what was going through my mind. You know? And now, it's not that they stop. They're still there. You know? But it's like, okay, they're not mine. You know? <laughs> Just watch them come and pass through. When there's a problem, it's because I've taken ownership of them. Oh, that's really my thought. That's where the problem is, not the fact that they're there. The Buddha, as, uh, as, as many of you know, most of you know, was visited by Mara. You know, Mara, just before he was enlightened, the Buddha uh, was visited by Mara, and, and Mara tried to confuse him. You know, and John gave a talk on the, the different the different ways that Mara confused. But even after the Buddha was enlightened, there are a number of passages in the Pali Canon where Mara comes to visit the Buddha, even after he's fully enlightened. And Mara does his little trick and tries to, tries to get the Buddha, and the Buddha says, I see you, Mara. And then Mara would slink away. What does that mean? If the Buddha sees Mara, you can come to your own, draw your own conclusions. So when you get visited by Mara, you know, you've got good company in there. Just see it. Oh, it's just confusion. It's just a thought. One way to also get some space around these kinds of thoughts is having a sense of humor about them. Because when you can laugh at the absurdity of this predicament, then it creates a lot of space in the mind. And you don't take it quite as personally. When you can laugh at it, instead of it being, you know, oh, look at my mind. It's, oh, wow, look at how the mind works. Isn't it amazing? Then you can be in on the joke instead of the butt of the joke. You can laugh at it. And on one, uh, one retreat, I would go to the, uh, the dining hall, is it IMS also, and uh, I was working with the judging mind intensively on this retreat. There's one um, uh, couplet from the Third Zen Patriarch that, uh, that really resonated with me. It says, um, the burdensome practice of judging brings annoyance and weariness. 
And that made sense to me. Yeah, the burdensome practice of judging brings annoyance and weariness. So every time I'd notice a judging thought in my mind, I would just tag on the line, the burdensome practice of judging, just to remind myself, oh, it's just, it's just a practice. It's just a habit. And I'd go into the, uh, the, uh, the, hall, the uh, dining room for lunchtime, just doing this practice, watching my judging thoughts, and there I'd be, you know, wow, he's really mindful. You know, I wish I could be that mindful. The burdensome practice of judging. You know, or she's going for a third portion. <laughs> burdensome practice of judging. You know, I, oh, God, I'm such a klutz. The burdensome practice of judging. And I would go through a meal. This is meal after meal. I did this and noticed like 50 75 times, you know, at least, for each meal, just catching that kind of a thought. And after a while, it was, it was crazy. It was absurd. You, you can either you know, feel like you know, killing yourself or just laugh at the absurdity of it. I, go, I suggest you go for the latter. <laughs> One way that, uh, that sometimes instructed to do is count your judgments. After a while, you'll just see how incessant it is, and if you don't take it personally, you, you've got to laugh. You know. Wow, I'm being pretty mindful, 139. You know. <laughs> Uh-oh, not doing it well, 140. You know. Not many thoughts now, 141. You know. And after a while, you just get some space around it. Some other, uh, another technique that I've found helpful working with the judging mind is um, acting as if you were the yogi you wished you were. That is, you want to be the perfect yogi, right? Well, just act as if you are the perfect yogi without being... Uh, prideful about it, but just that whatever you're doing is exactly what needs to be done. Especially if you're coming from a very sincere place, okay, and trying the best you can. Effort, as I said a few, uh, few talks ago, effort comes from sincerity, not from what it looks like out there. And if you want to get a, a sense of your practice, if you can feel that sincerity of heart that's really putting, uh, putting as heartfelt an effort into the moment, then just know, oh, I'm doing it just the way I need to. And starting to trust that and see, oh, wow, I can, uh, I can really do this practice. Because a lot of what gets in the way is thinking, I can't do this practice. And when you think, I can't do this practice, that becomes who you are. But if you start getting a sense, oh, I can do this practice. That doesn't mean that you'll be quiet or you'll be clear, but it means I can bring a heartfelt effort to the moment. Then you start seeing that you can and you gain confidence in that. You don't have control over how mindful or concentrated or, or calm you are. You do have 
input as to the sincere effort that you make. And as you start acting as if you know how to do this practice, it's good to get clear on the instructions so you know what you're doing, but not judging yourself by by what's going on, you start to, to have a different way of relating to practice and to yourself. Because you're focusing on what's good and what's, what's pure in you. At the beginning of the retreat and then yesterday, uh, people who came, we took refuges. Taking refuge is a very good source of faith in dealing with the judging and the comparing mind. And really, that's, it's a bit like what I just mentioned, acting as if you knew. Because when you take refuge in the Buddha, besides taking refuge in that, that figure who gave these teachings, you're taking refuge in your own place of inner wisdom, in that place that really knows the truth, if you can listen quietly enough. Taking refuge in your Buddha nature. And when you do that, what is there to compare with others? You're comparing what? Your Buddha nature against somebody else's Buddha nature? You know, my Buddha nature is better than, than yours? You know? <laughs> you know, it's just, it doesn't make sense. Right? What is your essence? You know, love, you could say. Awareness, you could say. Is it yours? Whose is it anyway? It's just this play of consciousness that shines through. This is uh, Nisargadot from I Am That. He says, To take appearance for reality is a grievous sin and the cause of all calamities. You are the all-pervading, eternal, and infinitely creative awareness consciousness. All else is local and temporal. Don't forget what you are. In the meantime, work to your heart's content, but don't forget what you are. So, in working with the comparing mind and with the judging mind, Remember, you're not alone in this. This is something that we all work with, come to terms with, hopefully understand. And when you realize that you're not alone, there's the possibility of not taking it personally. This is one of the, uh, the teachings of uh, Wes Nisker, who talks about the three characteristics, you know, of of suffering and, and uh, impermanence and no self, anicca, dukkha, anatta. He says, uh, life is hard, it'll put you through changes, but don't take it personally. That's the three characteristics. It's that not taking it personally, that freedom lies. So I'll close with um, this poem by Rumi. called the Sunrise Ruby.
in the early morning hour, just before dawn, lover and beloved wake and take a drink of water. She asks, do you love me or yourself more? Really tell the absolute truth. He says, there is nothing left of me. I'm like a ruby held up to the sunrise. Is it still a stone or a world made of redness? It has no resistance to sunlight. This is how Halaj said, I am God and told the truth. The ruby and the sunrise are one. Be courageous and discipline yourself. Completely become hearing and ear and wear this sun ruby as an earring. Work. Keep digging your well. Don't think about getting off from work. Water is there somewhere. Submit to a daily practice. Your loyalty to that practice is a ring on the door. Keep knocking and the joy inside will eventually open a window and look out to see who's there. Keep knocking and the joy inside will eventually open a window and look out to see who's there. So, you can sit for a moment. and there's a walking period now. We'll come back for another sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash
donate.